This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you had an extra hour in your day, what's the first thing you would do? Get outside more? Check in on that friend you've been meaning to catch up with? Maybe learn how to play an instrument? I know I've thought about what I would do with more time in my day, and many people daydream about what they might do in that scenario. The best way to squeeze that special thing into your actual schedule is to know what's important to you and take whatever reasonable steps you can to make those things more of a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you, so you can do more of it. Therapy is not just for people who've experienced major traumas. It's helpful for learning positive coping skills, how to set boundaries, and it empowers you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking about giving therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's fully online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a quick questionnaire that will match you up with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash FilmDaily today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash FilmDaily. This episode is sponsored by Marvel Strike Force. If you're looking for a superhero-themed mobile game, look no further. Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. Your goal is to power up your favorite characters to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and beat other players in PvP modes like Alliance War and Real-Time Arena. The game is currently celebrating its six-year anniversary, and they're letting new users in on the celebration by providing free stuff, courtesy of our unique link in the show notes. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses, and if you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all of the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out. We've received a unique promo code, so new users can follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. That's M-A-X-P-O-O-L. Thanks to Marvel Strike Force for sponsoring this episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Slash Film Show. Today is Tuesday, June 27th, 2023. On today's episode of the show, we're going to be talking about the latest film and TV news. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm an editor at SlashFilm.com, and I'm joined on today's episode by Slash Film writer and box office analyst, Ryan Scott. Hey, hey everyone. How's it going? Box office analyst. That, that phrase catches me up a little bit. Uh, Ryan, I'm glad that you're here. Uh, we have a lot of box office stuff to talk about, but first, I wanted to, uh, I guess, make some space for a couple announcements up here at the top of the show. First off, if you're in Los Angeles and you're listening to this, uh, and you're listening to this the day that the episode goes up or tomorrow, uh, Wednesday, June 28th, there's good news. Uh, Slash Film is hosting a free early screening of Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny in ScreenX on uh, Wednesday, June 28th, tomorrow night. So 7 p.m. is when it starts. We're giving away 100 tickets, first come, first served. All you have to do is show up and you Chances seem pretty good that you'll get in. Uh, I'm going to put a link in the show notes that you can get more details about the address and all that stuff. But um, I've not seen Indy yet. I'm excited to see it. And uh, yeah, we're doing this this free screening. So that'll be very cool. Uh, Bill Bria, who is a, a writer at Slash Film, is going to be there to do a little intro. I think there's going to be like some prize pack giveaways and things like that too. So uh, if you're in LA and looking to see Indy early, uh, there you go. All you got to do is, is show up. So um, and then also I mentioned last week when Chris and I were talking about the Indiana Jones franchise that I had an article in the works that was going to be published soon that was basically an oral history about uh, the very end of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. And that article is now up and I will link to that in the show notes as well. I think it turned out really well. Um, so yeah, I encourage you to, to check that out sort of as a, a companion piece to the conversation that Chris and I were having uh, about 
what might be one of the, well, what, what certainly is one of the better Indiana Jones movies. Um, all right, Ryan. So I'm, I'm thrilled that you're here because uh, The Flash, man, we got to talk about The Flash. I don't think, uh, I don't think you've been on the, bo- the podcast since the box office numbers for The Flash uh, came out yet. So um, no, I was very sick last week. Uh, and uh, yeah, so I unfortunately missed uh, writing a lot about a lot of what had happened, but yeah. Oh my God. Do we have some stuff to talk about? Okay. So, so tell me what's going on because you just published an article. Um, I think this might've been yesterday called the flash is now a box office disaster of super heroic proportions. So this is not just a, a run of the mill, um, you know, disappointment. This is like a, a pretty significant thing. Yeah, it is. And I think, so what we're about to talk about too, with some of the comparisons here, it's not good company to be in for a movie of this size. There's no movie of this size that I can find to compare this level of collapse to. So we're kind of in unprecedented territory in some ways. And like you and I had talked a bit for sure in the lead up, I think it's worth remembering. And I bought into this a little bit that like leading up to this movie, James Gunn hyped it up in a big, bad way. David Zaslav was hyping it up in a big, bad way. Like, you know, they had that super early screening at CinemaCon that you saw. I think mm-hmm. everyone sort of thought this was going to be, and not to say, like, it's not like the reviews for it are terrible or anything. But, you know, th- th- this was hyped up as, you know, the best DC movie since The Dark Knight. So I think people sort of, you know, the fact that in the face of all the Ezra Miller stuff that Dis- that that Warner Brothers didn't cancel it or whatever, it just seemed like Warner Brothers had a hit on their hands. Mm-hmm. I bought into it. It just so did not go that way. So so it's been talked about a lot, but it's worth remembering that the first weekend this movie debuts to $55 million. Not at all good for a big superhero movie of any kind. Just not what you're looking for. Um, you know, especially particularly this movie has a $200 million production budget. So that's very bad. Yeah. Now, now we're getting it. But, but okay, so it's always about the holds, right? Because... Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania opened real big earlier this year, fell apart. So it's, you know, it, it, these movies are made week to week. Now It's a long game. It's a, it can be. And, and ideally, it, you know, anyway. So what happened here, the movie absolutely collapsed in its second weekend. Um, the Flash fell 72%, uh, made just $15.1 million in its second weekend. Uh, there was a, a lot of concern heading into the weekend because Elemental and Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse outgrossed it on both Wednesday and Thursday. So people were like, oh my God, it's already like falling behind. Elemental had bombed on its opening weekend as well, but audience retention has been much better for that. Elemental only dropped 38% in its second weekend. That's what you like to see. Um, so, you know, just to give you an idea of how much worse it was for The Flash. So where we're at at this very second, the Flash uh, has made $212.5 million worldwide. Uh, theaters keep about half of ticket sales, so Warner Brothers has only recouped about half of the budget, let alone what they spent on marketing. They are going mm-hmm. to lose a fortune on this movie. At this point, you're looking at about a $300, $300 million worldwide finish, give or take. <coughs> Sorry, I got a bit of a lingering cough. Um now, you asked for some comparisons before we started, I believe. Yes, Ben? Yeah, I was just wondering, like, you know, we were talking about this sort of almost legendary, like, unprecedented thing. And I'm, I'm curious about, like, those that second weekend drop-off, um, you know, what sort of percentages are we talking about in terms of, like, other movies that have ex- experienced essentially walking off a cliff in its second weekend like this? Yeah, all right. So, uh, here's where we're at. As far as superhero movies go, 
only one superhero movie has ever had a worse second weekend as far as its hold goes. That would be Morbius, which dropped 73.8% in its second weekend last year. Morbius, as we know, finished with $167.4 million worldwide. Uh, but in Morbius's favor, the movie had a, uh, I believe it's reported, final reported budget was around $75 million. Mm-hmm. Not as whole high profile of a movie. Now, I'm not saying Sony made money on Morbius, especially with the delays, but I'm saying, oddly enough, Sony probably didn't lose very much money on Morbius. You know, they they, they probably lost some money, but but it, it, not at all. So um, so there's that. That's as far as superhero movies go. Now, here's where things get real bad. I just found this out yesterday. Among forty million dollar among movies that have made at least forty million dollars on their opening weekend. The Flash's second weekend drop is the fourth biggest of all time. The mm. only ones that did worse were the 2009 Friday the 13th, which dropped 80.4%. Halloween Ends, which dropped 80%. But Halloween Ends, let us not forget, was also on Peacock at the same time. Mm-hmm. And Fifty Shades of Grey. And now the other thing you remember, Fifty Shades of Grey opened massive, way above expectations. So that was super front-loaded. Uh, none of those movies had anywhere near a near a, a, you know a two hundred million dollar budget, and horror tends to drop big at second weekend anyway because they're front loaded. So mm-hmm. again, we're in completely unprecedented territory here, as far as I can tell. This is so bad, um, and yeah. I don't like being Mister Negative, but I mean, there's no, I mean, you know, I want to see things go well. I like the theatrical experience. The problem when you have movies like this fail, it's bad for theaters, it's bad for the studio, it's bad all around. This is just bad news. Yeah, and I, you know, it's it's unfortunate because as Jacob and I had a big discussion about, I think it was last week, um, you know, we actually kind of like ended up liking the movie to a degree. I mean, it's it's certainly not the the disaster that I think people are painting it out to be like creatively speaking. It certainly is financially speaking, um, which is unfortunate. But I'm wondering like what you think Ryan, about the the creative prospects. Obviously, a sequel seems like it's probably off the table now, right? Um, oh my God, there's no. There, I mean, there's no. <laughs> well, I mean, look, I, look. I'm not trying to be funny, but like, but like, I mean, as far as okay, there's been a lot of people you and I know very well being in this business. People that have championed the so-called Snyderverse for handful of years now. Mm-hmm. If there was ever evidence that that the, there is a there is nails going into that coffin right now. And that Warner Brothers is moving away from that entirely. This is it. Yeah. I don't even think Jason Momoa's Aquaman's on the table. Like, I think they are done. I think anything that Snyder touched, it's it's off the table. That's yeah, that's actually what I was going to ask you is like the idea of um, of Jason Momoa's Aquaman. Like the first Aquaman made over a billion dollars. I think the second one has been like fairly quiet in the lead up. I mean, it comes out what in December, like right around Christmas time of this year, I think. Um, there's been, you know, this sort of stink of like the James Gunn and Peter Safran coming in and essentially saying, Hey, we're going to reboot the DC universe into our own connected thing where like all these stories are going to crisscross over and matter. And all the same actors are going to play these characters across film and TV and video games and all this stuff. And these projects that were in the works before we came along are not really going to fit into are presumably not really going to fit into our future plans for what's going on here. Um, I'm wondering though, if you think that, um, that like if Aquaman and the lost kingdom or whatever, I think that's the title, right? Uh, yeah, that's the, that's the, the title. Yes. And it does come out in December. It's the, it's the big holiday release this year. Yeah. So if that, you know, um, 
overperforms and like, you know, makes over a billion dollars, makes, you know, $1.7 billion, let's say. Um, is that enough? Are, does does uh, David Zaslav and the folks at Warner Brothers in DC, do they actually start, um, you know, taking a crowbar to those nails in that coffin that you were talking about a little bit and just kind of like reopen that box just a little enough to maybe incorporate um, some more of the, the, uh, aspects that of the the so-called Snyderverse that worked financially into this future plan, or do you think, regardless of how much money Aquaman makes, even if it becomes you know a juggernaut beyond all juggernauts, creatively speaking, there's just no way that they can sort of um, put that circle into a square. Uh, you're presuming a lot here, and I think the problem is that I, now I, there's a lot of people that got on me for this because I wrote a thing for us too. The sort of because you have Blue Beetle and Aquaman coming out this year too, and I am now very down on the prospect of both of those movies. And I mean Aquaman 2 relative to... Uh, Aquaman, amazingly enough, the highest grossing DC movie of all time. Uh, not even The Dark Knight Rises made more money than Aquaman. So, but I think the problem is that like Aquaman's been delayed a bunch of times. It's been, it's been stated out loud directly that James Wan has had to sort of retool the movie to fit these changes that have been going on. Um, I would wager my suspicion is that James Wan is not happy. Uh, he is making that deal with atomic monster to merge with Blumhouse and essentially move over to universal. That to me says a lot. Mm -hmm. um, so, so I, you know, so I don't know. I'm not saying, I don't know if Aquaman is going to be good or not, but I'm saying that like, I believe that movie is going to make money. I don't think it's going to make what the first one made. And it's probably okay. very expensive. So then you're looking at a movie that like, okay, maybe that movie bails you out a little bit, ends that DC, but I don't think it's going to be enough to say, okay, we, 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 cause I think you just need to say, we got to wholesale change this. It's not working. You know, it's just not pound per pound. If you compare the last like eight DC movies that weren't the Batman to like the last eight Marvel movies, it, it's, I mean, it's just, there's no comparison, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's really bad. So I think James Gunn wants a clean slate. I think Peter Safran wants a clean slate. I think WB wants a clean slate. I think they can't just say we're rebooting everything because you had four big expensive movies you have to promote and sell to the masses. Yep. And I'm not saying that like your average person pays attention to the reboot as much and you should ideally watch a movie on its own terms. That's not how we do things anymore. So I think James Gunn as an executive came out and said what he needed to say. He said nice things about The Flash to try to help people see it. He's saying that Blue Beetle might be included in the new DC universe because they need people to see that movie. Does that mean it's actually going to happen? No, it does not. Yeah. That's what I believe. That's I don't know whether or not that's true. That's what I believe. So yeah. I think we're heading toward an absolute full reboot. And I think that there is now way more pressure on Gunn and Saffron than there was when they took the job. And I don't think they have a lot of time to make it work. You know, I think you've got Superman Legacy and maybe you got one other movie. And then, like, if those don't work, I have no idea what happens. Um, so I don't know. We'll see. But uh, the, the pressure is on and, and it's it's going to be brutal. Yeah, that's a fascinating idea of like, you know, them almost being the idea, the the equivalent of like uh, coaches in sports who are like pulled into a, um, you know, a, a, a premier team 
and like demanded to perform at the highest level and like take their team to a championship or something. But like, if they don't do that within a year or two, they're just immediately replaced. And it's kind of like, well, you know, people need time to actually, uh, to, to continue this metaphor to like recruit and like build a culture at a a team and things like that. So, um, but you know, with as chaotic as the, as the, uh, entertainment industry is right now, I can totally see that happening. Them just being yanked from that position after one or two movies, well, um, I think they said that that initial contract was only two or three years anyway, and then there was like an assessment point for the studio. Right. I think the bigger problem is that the financial, like Warner Brothers financials have not been great. People have seen reports of like, you know, Warner Brothers selling like $500 million worth of its music catalog and things yes. like that. They're doing crazy things to save money. When you have a movie like this, that's probably going to lose at least $150 million. I can explain to people how I got there with that math if they'd like. But the point is like, people have fought me a little bit on the math. I'm telling you, they're going to lose a ton of money. You can only suffer so many of those before something dramatic has to change. Yeah. Superman legacy. Let's say they even make it for, let's say they make it for $150 million, which would be surprisingly cheap for a big blockbuster. Now mm-hmm. you're still talking about a movie that would need to make 400, 450 million worldwide, you know, just to kind of break even. So, I mean, I just think that at a certain point, it's not even about giving them time. It's about the studio can only weather so much before some, before the bill comes due. That's where I'm starting to get concerned. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, so one of the other things that I wanted to talk to you about regarding the flash, I guess, and and the Flash's uh, box office disappointment is that, um, evidently it, the, uh, underperformance of the film might have killed a Batman beyond movie. What can you tell me about that, Ryan? Yeah, so this was, I actually uh, very regularly uh, listen to, or I guess watch, because they had it on YouTube, uh, Kevin Smith does a uh, podcast called Fat Man Beyond, which he co-hosts with uh, Mark Bernardin, which I watch very regularly, and, you know, Kevin Smith is a, a much beloved filmmaker, he knows a lot of people, and, you know, people tell him things, and he was uh, on there talking about, um, uh, he, he had uh, spoken to uh, Michael Uslan's kid, Michael Uslan. Uh, has been a producer of the Batman franchise pretty much the whole time. And uh, he dropped a little nugget on on an episode of the podcast. He said, uh, Michael Uslan's kid, I saw his kid at the premiere of The Flash. And I said, where's your dad? He said, he goes, he's home watching the grosses. I said, why? He goes, because if this movie does as well as the Batman, and Matt me- Matt Reeves the Batman opened to $130 million, So he goes, if this movie opens as well as the Batman, then one of the next Batman movies they're going to make is Batman Beyond with Michael Keaton. Now, mind you, this is not coming from nobody. This is coming from one of the core producers of the franchise who was basically saying, you know, obviously was straight up skipping a premiere to watch Gross's eagerly uh, <laughs> hoping. So and we've heard this is not coming out of nowhere. We've heard Warner Brothers wanted to make a Batman Beyond movie for years. And we also heard, I think it was early this year, late last year, that Christina Hodson, who co-wrote The Flash, was actually writing a Batman Beyond movie script for Michael Keaton. So this is not coming out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so apparently there was very serious talk of that maybe happening, but the grosses completely killed that. Yeah, and I I wonder, like, you know, part of me thinks that would have been cool to see, um... I'm I'm kind of mixed on Michael Keaton's performance or or appearance, I guess, in the Batman. I feel like he he did all he could do, but like the script kind of hung him out to dry a little bit. He had he had a few good moments, I think, but a lot of it was sort of like classic nostalgia baiting stuff of like, all right, now I'm going to say the lines and like do the things from the original movies that you you know that you remember or whatever. And so the idea of like him stepping beyond just um, 
you know, pure callbacks and things like that into a new mode of storytelling uh, as that character is is appealing to me. But I just think, Ryan, like the box office performance, um, given how heavily Michael Keaton was promoted as like a key figure in The Flash, the box office performance of that movie must indicate to people at, at Warner Brothers that like, okay, audiences are just straight up done with Michael Keaton as Batman, right? Is that is that your assessment here? Well, I it was look, Michael Keaton was Batman 31 years ago. I think the idea that you're hinging a movie on that being interesting, you know, I way over people they way overestimated the interest in that. Um I wrote another thing for us, you know, sort of going over. I think the Flash's collapse at the box office is like it's no one thing, right? I think one of the things was overestimating how how much people would be excited about, you know, Michael Keaton returning as Batman, but um yeah, like I think the I I would love a Batman Beyond movie. I think I think audiences would love a Batman Beyond movie executed executed correctly. I mm-hmm. think you could totally use Michael Keaton as the older Bruce Wayne, and you cast Terry McGinnis around him. I don't know, have a Dylan O'Brien be uh, Terry McGinnis, right? Like you you could totally build a Batman Beyond movie around Michael Keaton, but you can't you can't rest it purely on Michael Keaton's Batman is the only reason to make this movie. Like right. so, I think that and look it's absolutely correct to look at those flash grosses and go okay we we this is way too risky right now so especially when you have not only the batman part two from matt reeves coming out but you have the brave and the bold as part of james gunn's dc reboot which is going to have yet another new batman in it Mm -hmm. so do you really want to have three batmans at the same time probably not yeah yeah, it's a bummer. I, I feel like they're, I don't know, maybe maybe not now, maybe a few years ago, maybe whatever the case may have been. There, there, there was like a creative window where that kind of thing maybe potentially could have worked. And it's just like with all of the, the sort of swirling elements and, and factors coming together right now, this is just like the absolute worst time for <laughs> for all of this to be happening to, um, you know, for, for the, the potential of that character to return. So um yeah, that's a bummer, but uh, it sounds like no Batman Beyond movie with Michael Keaton. Maybe one day they'll, you know, maybe even James Gunn and, and Peter Saffron will will greenlight a Batman Beyond movie. But it sounds like um, they'll probably use a, a different Batman if that happens. And it'll be years and years away, I would guess. So, um, all right, let's take a quick break and then we'll be right back to talk a little bit about uh, James Gunn's Superman film. All right. So uh, there was a report in The Hollywood Reporter, I believe this was yesterday, that um, James Gunn is doing a lot of casting for uh, or, or sort of casting tests for Superman Legacy. Um, we don't need to get into like all of the who's who of what, you know, who's trying out for what and all that kind of stuff. Um, you can read various reports on that, including ours, which is linked in the show notes. But um, there was something that I, I thought was interesting, and you wrote a little bit about this yesterday. So uh, I'm, I'm just going to read from The Hollywood Reporter here. Once the decisions on uh, the casting decisions on Clark Kent and Lois Lane are made, Gunn will click, quickly pull the trigger on the next wave. Sources say there's also a short list for villain Lex Luthor. Siblings Alexander and Bill Skarsgård have been mentioned as being on it. And it's not clear whether Nicholas Holt, who was initially wanted for the part before trying to try, uh, deciding to try out for Clark Kent slash Superman, would put himself in the running again. There are also other heroes to cast, such as members of a supergroup named The Authority. Part of the new storyline is Superman joining a world in which superheroes already exist. So there's a couple things there, Ryan. Um, first of all, the idea that like Alexander and or Bill Skarsgård could be Lex Luthor. I, I guess let's just stop there. And like, what would you think about either of those guys being cast in, as the villain, this sort of major villain in the DCU going forward? 
I think it's probably worth like me mentioning, like I'm not a big Superman guy. So like, I don't have as much, you know, like in personal investment and in, like, Oh, who's Lex Luthor. I think it's interesting that like Bill and Alexander both offer something so different to that role. And you can see it both ways. I, I, I would, I would probably lean toward Alexander cause he's kind of got that like classic, like, um, I don't know that villainy to him, uh, <laughs> but, but I don't know. I mean, I find both of those interesting. I tell you the guy I've talked about this a little bit. Nicholas Holt was so close to being Batman in the Batman. He was, it was him and Robert Pattinson and they went with Pattinson. Imagine being Nicholas Holt. And when in the span of three years, you, you, you lose out on Batman you could be Lex Luthor and then you go, no, you know what? I want to be Superman. And it, there's no decisions yet, but I, then if he loses out on Superman too, that's brutal. Like I, th <laughs> I think Nicholas, I because like you lose out on both of those roles in the span of a few years. But he got to be Renfield, Brian. So, you know, what else, what more I do you want? I liked Renfield. Like? I, I'm, I, 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 I liked Renfield. But yeah, <laughs> look, no, nobody's crying. Nicholas Holtz had a very good career and he's going to continue to have a good career. But <clears throat> that's rough to lose out on both of those roles in a short period. I'm not saying he, he lost Superman yet, but um, I don't know. I actually like the idea. I like, I, it's hard for me to picture Nicholas Holtz as Superman. It's easier for me to picture him as Lex Luthor. I don't know where you come at on this, Ben. Yeah, I, I kind of think Bill Skarsgård has like too much of a, um, I don't know, maybe maybe he just was so good as uh, as Pennywise in the It movies and like even even in like John Wick Chapter 4 where he's, he's wearing suits and he's like nice and, and sort of, um, you know, quote unquote fancy in, in that movie to a, to a degree, right? Like so like that's that should conceivably put him sort of in the, the aesthetics of Les, Lex Luthor minus the bald head. But he's like such an interesting looking guy that I just don't imagine him. I don't know. That that would be such a fascinating choice. And maybe like in line with James Gunn's kind of like, um, <laughs> if I say that, that it's in line with James Gunn's twisted view of the world, that makes uh, Bill Skarsgård sound like a monster or something. And he's not like he's, he's a, um, you know, he's a good looking dude. He's just like conventionally, he's, he's not necessarily the, the conventionally attractive guy that Alexander Skarsgård is, well, right? I think that's so. what's interesting too. I think that's part of what I liked about Barbarian last year is that like Bill Skarsgård just got to be like a normal dude. Yeah. And like yeah, yeah. it actually, it actually worked shockingly well, but yeah, like you look at Alexander Skarsgård and you see him in like, God, what movie was that? Oh, it was in like the Tarzan movie where he's just like the most shredded a person has ever been. And you're like, well, mm -hmm. that's impossible. Uh, you know, and then like, yeah, yeah or the Northman or any number yeah, of things. Oh yeah. my God. That's right. The Northman. Yeah. And like a year ago, he's still just, but yeah, it's, so it's like, it, but it's interesting to look at a guy who like Alexander, who like you could totally cast as like, you could cast him as like century in the Marvel universe. Like you could put him as like a, a classic superhero guy, but to make him Lex Luthor instead, there's something about that. That's compelling to me. Mm -hmm. But like, but yeah, cause Bill almost seems obvious. I I'd rather take, Make Bill Skarsgård Swamp Thing, you know what I mean? Like do something. Oh man, like, that's like, cool. You know, but like, but yeah, I, I could easily because Gunn tends to circle back to people. I could easily see whoever doesn't get a role here that they, they they may come back around. Lots of DC projects in the hopper. Yeah, definitely. So the other interesting thing of that chunk that I read that that sort of jumped out to me was um, the the idea that the part of the new storyline for Superman Legacy is going to be Superman joining a world in which superheroes already exist. And this super group, the authority is going to be, uh, yeah, like, like an existing force in this universe, which is kind of a different approach than anything that DC has done before. I'm trying to remember like the, the introduction of all of the other Superman movies. I'm pretty sure going back to Christopher Reeve and then you've got 
Um, Superman. Uh, yeah, Superman is? Returns was Returns. very much like, but that was pretty much like in some way like a pseudo sequel to the Christopher Reeve movies, and then right, yeah, Man of kind Steel, of... Man of Steel, Superman kind of existed on an island, like. Yeah, so like in all of those movies, he's not emerging. Kal El is not emerging into a world where superheroes clearly exist. I mean, uh, I guess they—if you want to call it a retcon or whatever—like Wonder Woman had been around for a long time before, and like uh, Ben Affleck's Batman is like a grizzled older Batman, so like conceivably he had been around, sort of doing his thing in the side. But like, but 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 there's that, but there's that argument to make though, even in that world that is like, is Batman a superhero, right? Like he's just a guy with, you know what I mean? Like nobody, yeah. There's no super powered beings because Wonder Woman had been hidden. But I think the idea. Yeah, sorry, go ahead and finish it up. That, that, you know, that, that, you're right, because that was kind of a retcon in the Snyderverse, for sure. Yeah, it was just sort of like, oh, this worked, so let's go ahead and build out this universe from here kind of thing. Um, and they they certainly, like, skipped some steps compared to Marvel, and that obviously probably led to, like, the downfall of the DCEU as we know it. But, um, but yeah, just this, like, sort of, like, from-the-jump approach of there being superheroes existing in this world as this new Superman is being introduced into it is just kind of a fascinating, um, I don't know, like a narrative wrinkle that we haven't really seen in a superhero movie before and like my first thought ryan goes back to like something like um spider-man 3 sam raimi's spider-man 3 which i think has been held up for a long time as uh maybe like the the er example of a movie that had too much going on in terms of characters and like villains and um i mean you could argue that like uh, batman and robin had this a similar issue but i feel like spider-man 3 the conversation around that in 2007 when that came out was very much about like okay this movie is too busy there's too many you know major characters for me to care about here there's not even enough room really for spider-man to sort of um you know exist in his own his own space almost and then like with the marvel stuff that has come after that there have obviously been tons of like interconnecting characters and like, you know, the, the cast of these things have just grown and grown and grown. So I, I was kind of hoping for a stripped down, um, you know, stripped back, like simple type of uh, Superman reboot, which seems to be something that, that Gunn has been talking about and kind of like teasing here. But now knowing that, okay, this, this group, the authority is going to be here, that automatically means, all right, you're devoting x amount of screen time to these characters and who introducing them to the world and uh you know what do they mean and how do they relate with superman and what what are those dynamics and all that kind of stuff so it's just like it's interesting that that gun is just saying okay i'm not going to i'm going to give myself um an obstacle in in uh, so to speak you know a, a narrative obstacle that i'm going to overcome here because he's writing this movie himself he didn't have to do this um so I don't know, all that was sort of swirling around in my head when I read all that. I just wanted to throw it to you and just see, you know, what what your gut reaction was to hearing the, about this different approach to this new Superman movie. I only care about Superman because James Gunn's doing it. Like, and, and the one thing I'll say is that, like, uh, James Gunn has proven himself exceedingly well at balancing a lot of characters and not making it feel, like, exhausting, the first Guardians of the Galaxy, I mean, my God, being able to introduce us to all those characters that nobody knew a thing about. Because that thing is people, you're talking about this movie, Superman and Lois Lane. People have a tertiary understanding of those characters, at least. You don't necessarily have to exhaust us with who those people are. Um, but James Gunn is very good at, and like the Suicide Squad balanced, you know, it was almost an entirely new cast of characters compared to the first one. Technically two casts, because that whole first cast gets killed off. And like, he does a very good job of like being able to 
weave those characters into the movie without like having to exhaust us with who is this person? Let's give them an introduction, blah, blah, blah. Like that, that 2016 Suicide Squad movie did a very bad job of like, let's introduce you to every single individual character. And this mm-hmm. is an exhausting way to do that. Gunn is very good at not doing that. So I feel like if he's including superheroes in the world already, he's probably got a narrative reason for it. And the other thing I would say is that like, it makes sense if you're building a new universe for Superman not necessarily to be the first and only superhero in that universe. It's such a hard place to come back from where you're like saying Superman's the start. Where do we go from here? Like, cause so I, I like the idea that like Superman's entering a world where there are already various types of superheroes. That's interesting to me. It's a slightly different approach. You got to do something else to make Superman work. I'm interested in that. Yeah. I wonder if like the creature commandos um, animated series that Gunn is also working on, which I think is going to be like the first thing out of the gate. If, if my timeline is correct. Yeah. That'll be the first DCU. one. I think that comes out early next year is what the plan is. Yeah. So I wonder if that will include any of these authority characters that he mentions here, just as a way to sort of um, get a little bit of the, the introduction stuff um, taken care of elsewhere. I mean, obviously he'll have to do it on a larger scale to people who don't watch, who don't opt in for the, the TV stuff and, and like reintroduce people for the movies. But um, yeah, I'm just curious to know like what his like grand approach is here. Um, we wrote an article a little while ago. I think this was like, uh, I guess in January of this year about um, James Gunn talking about his plans for the DCU and like uh, it's sort of like an explainer article about who the authority are. Cause I didn't read a uh, Wildstorm comics growing up, Ryan. I don't know if you did or not. Did no, you, no, did... that was way outside my purview. I don't know anything about the authority. Yeah. So they are, they're like a, a group of sort of like they're, I guess called kind of like the anti justice league, or you could describe them that way. Um, and I, I think there's a quote from Gunn that I thought was interesting, especially the idea of like including them into the Superman movie in this context. And his quote was, they're basically good intentioned, but I think that the, uh, the world is completely broken. And the only way to fix it is to take things into their own hands. That's what they think. Uh, whatever that means, killing people, destroying heads of state, changing governments, whatever they want to do to make the world better. And we'll see how that journey goes for them. But as I said earlier, there are morally gray characters uh, in the DCU, which these are talking about the authority. So um, the idea of like introducing morally gray characters into a Superman film, which is supposed to be very, I mean, historically has been very uh, black and white. Um, Man of Steel muddled that a little bit, uh, but it seems like Gunn is trying to return to that sort of like uh, classic, you know, uh, all American type of Superman. Um yeah, mashing like, that up with this morally gray uh, group is a, is a fascinating concept. Yeah, it gives Superman something to play off of, right? It allows you to sort of understand that contrast, which I which I like. And also the authority, because I read up a little bit, it does strike me as like, I don't know if you ever read or the, the Illuminati comics from Marvel. Like I know the Illuminati had a small part in Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, but like there's a their original, like I think it's 2006, the Illuminati miniseries is very much about like, you have like Doctor Strange, Professor X, Black Panther, uh, Namor and and uh, Reed Richards, I believe, have been like you go through all these hugely important moments in Marvel history and you realize that like the Illuminati have been like pulling the strings behind the scenes to sort of orchestrate things in such a way. Mm-hmm. So the authority sort of sounds a little bit like that to me. And I like that idea. It's an interesting idea. Yeah. Okay, so the last thing that I want to talk about is just uh, an update on where all the strikes are in 
uh, Hollywood right now. So the Writers Guild is still on strike. I think it's like day 50 something of the strike. So hopefully the studios will come back to the table and they can get uh, a good deal at some point uh, very soon for the for the writers, because that's I mean, obviously, like we're starting to feel, I think, in a, a very serious way now, the um, the implications and the ripple effects of the studios like holding out in, in such a um, in such a way. And then so the Directors Guild of America was the next guild up and they have reached a tentative deal with the um, Association of Producers or whatever. And the uh, the industry at large is kind of like reeling from that to some degree because there was there was all this talk about like, oh, now, you know, with all of the, um, the support for the writers and uh, all this talk of strikes, like we could have had a potential three way strike going on that would have just absolutely brought Hollywood to its knees in the hopes of like, getting the people who actually do the work, um, fair compensation and, and, you know, uh, all of their concerns addressed in a serious way by the studios who are the ones who like reap the, the benefits of all of this work that people are doing. So the, the screen actors guild, um, or SAG AFTRA, I guess is the, is the official name. Uh, they could still potentially go on strike, but there was this, this idea that like maybe the, w- the WGA SAG AFTRA and the DGA would all go on strike at the same time. And that appears to be not happening anymore because the DJ has reached this agreement. Um, unfortunately, there is some like grumbling within the, the membership of the DGA about like the idea that the deal that they agreed to is not necessarily as good as they hoped, um, which I guess probably happens in, in most deals. But, uh, you know, the transparency issue of like telling s- streamers, hey, you know, you actually have to, you should, you should, um, be more open and, and transparent with the numbers here so people can actually get paid when they work on hit shows. You know, there's a, there should be a difference in directing something like Wednesday, which blows up on Netflix and, and has, you know, millions and millions and millions of viewers versus some show that like just completely is a drop in the bucket and like nobody pays attention to. Um, that's their argument. But uh, that kind of stuff that the transparency issue was not really dealt with um, in terms of AI, um, the deal evidently stipulates that studios may not use generative AI in connection with creative elements without consultation with the director or other DGA covered employees. But some people are complaining that consultation doesn't necessarily mean that they, <laughs> that they, the director has to actually sign off on it. Like you can, you can consult with them. And if the director says no, the studio can just be like, okay, well, we've, uh, we've noted that and we're just going to do what we were going to do anyway. Um, so that's kind of a bummer. Um, but yeah, we wrote a whole piece about this and I want people to, to go and read that if they're curious about these issues at all. Um, I think Lily Wachowski, who is one of the, the co-writers and, and co-directors of uh, The Matrix, um, said uh, had a good statement that I feel like um, encapsulates uh, a little bit of the, the grumbling feeling about what's going on here. She said, I feel like this is about power. I feel like a contingent of the DGA philosophically finds comfort in a hierarchical uh, model where their position, the director, is holy. They alone have the director's vision. They are auteurs sitting atop the pyramid. And in this self-artistic idolatry, I believe directors, not all directors, in a small way, feel more aligned with CEOs atop the mountain. It is why, in part, they negotiate in their own self-interest rather than with the myriad of highly skilled professionals and artisans who are essential to make our particular kind of communal art. So, um, yeah, I think that's, that's a good way of sort of wrapping that up and, and um underlining some of the complaints that people have about the deal that the DGA signed. Uh, we're still waiting to see what's going to happen with SAG-AFTRA. I believe their contract is up on June 30th, which is just three days from now. Yeah, and it's on Friday. Um, yeah, because that's the thing is like, the, even if the Directors Guild deal gets done, 
if SAG strikes too, it's still going to be a disaster. Yeah. Like, and, and, and the other thing is I will, I don't know if you had, to, uh, Jeff Snyder, who is a known, you know, he, he gets quite a few, you know, big industry scoops and stuff. He'd posted, uh, they'd take this with a grain of salt, but he said there, uh, what he's hearing as of now is that SAG after will not reach a deal before Friday and that the WGA strike is looking to probably extend into October is the best ex- estimate. But uh, it looks like the SAG is SAG is going to get an extension on the negotiations. They don't know how long that could be. Could be a week, could be a month. But there, the, it doesn't look like a SAG deal is necessarily close to getting done either way. Yeah. So, so there's yeah. still like a possibility of a strike there, which, you know, it, again, if you have all of the actors and writers striking in Hollywood, I mean, that's going to be, I, I don't even know what that looks like. Yeah, I don't think that's ever happened before. It has um, not. So yeah, that would that would certainly be brand new territory for all of us. And um, and again, I hope this doesn't happen. I, I hope the studio. I mean, it's it's a it's an uphill battle that they're fighting because nobody wants to give up money. Um, but like, I, I hope that the studios and the producers and the people who are making these decisions realize that like you know they're the ones who are effectively responsible for whatever uh, chaos and destruction is about to um, rain down on Hollywood from, you know, the consequences of these actions. So um, I, I really hope they're able to find some sort of common ground here and, um, and, you know, everybody gets like an equitable share of what they're, what they're worth. So uh, yeah, I just wanted to give a quick update on that and, um, and we'll be certainly be, be tracking the, uh, the WGA strike and the potential SAG after strike uh, very closely at Slash Film. If you want to learn more about that, I encourage you to go to SlashFilm.com. Uh, I think that's going to do it for today's show. Ryan, where can people find you on the internet? Sometimes I, I uh, most of the time I don't ask people, but you know, occasionally want to throw this in there and, and give people opportunities to plug their socials or wherever people can, can sort of track them down. So where can people find your work? Uh, I am on Twitter far too often. Uh, find me at Ryan Scott writes, uh, like the word writes W R I T E S. Uh, yeah, I, share my work on there, but people that, uh, uh, want more, uh, daily box office musings and such, I tend to share thoughts on there. So by all means, go find me on Twitter. Excellent. Yeah. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Ben pairs, and you can find more about all the stories that we mentioned on today's show at slashfilm.com. The slash film show is published two times a week, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe to the show on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please subscribe to our newsletter, send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns, and mailbag topics to us at bpearson at slashfilm.com. Please leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends, spread the word. Thanks for listening. And if you go to that Indiana Jones screening tomorrow, uh, send us an email. Let us know how it it is and and was. Uh, I would love to know. So um, bpearson at slashfilm.com. Enjoy, everybody. Thanks for listening. And we'll talk to you next time.